All right. So here we are. Mark chapter 11. So last week, Jesus went in and he cleaned out. He cleaned house in the temple. He came into his father's house. He had been coming towards Jerusalem and on his way. He found out when he got there that there was all kinds of abominable practices going on in the house of worship. Uh, There were people there changing money. And they were robbing the people blind that had come there to worship God, Jehovah. But when they got there, even if they did want to worship him with their uh, possessions, with their finances, what they did was they'd have to change the money. And when they were changing money, they'd find out that the money was being changed and they were being charged an enormous amount of money in order to exchange their money for temple money. And the people there had even weighed their scales so that they could actually end up ripping the people off. So Jesus, when he showed up and he found that out, he showed up to his father's house and found out that the people were being ripped off. And because of that, they didn't want to come to church anymore. They despised worship completely. And so because of that, um, Jesus came in. He he formed a whip made out of cords and he he literally went in there and he he tossed over temple tables and and he pushed all the people out that shouldn't have been there in the first place. And then if you'll remember with me, Jesus had walked up to this fig tree. And when he found the fig tree, he found that the tree was not producing any fruit. And we talked about the fact that it it was just like him showing up in the temple. He he realized that this nation he had poured abundant amounts of resources into. He he walked up to this nation. He found out that at the heart of their center of worship, there was no fruit being produced. All there was was this tree that was all about itself. It wasn't producing any fruit. It was just a tree that was growing. It was just taking up soil. And so God sent Jesus in there to, to show them that they were really messing up. They were missing the point of why the temple was built in the first place. It was meant to be a house of worship, not a den of thieves that it had become. And I think that you could agree that there are many, uh, there are many churches and there are many places that are, are now missing the point. Uh, the point of church was not to just have another social function or a, a gathering. It was to be a house of prayer and it was to be a a hospital, essentially, where people could come and, and get filled up with the Word of God and they could be, uh, have the, you know, just live life with each other, but also have the cares of the world that are weighing them down released from them. And they could just uh, bear one another's burden, weep with those who are weeping, and, and, uh, and jo- have joy with those that are doing well. So verse 20 says there, in Mark chapter 11, it says, Now in the morning as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering, said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree, which you cursed just the other day, has withered away. So Peter remembered what had happened just the day before that Jesus had walked up to this fig tree. And because it hadn't produced any fruit in the springtime, he put two and two together and, and realized that you know Jesus had cursed this tree. And the next day... They didn't expect the tree to actually be withered and not, not, it was withered and it was dead in one day. But uh, Peter put two, to, two and two together, remembered that Jesus had said it and then saw the result. And he was amazed at what Jesus had done with just words. But because of this power, this authority that produced results, Peter was overwhelmingly amazed. So verse 22 says, Jesus answered and he said to them, have faith in God. For assuredly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. And he does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done. He will have whatever he says. 
Therefore, I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. So Jesus speaks just briefly here about the power of prayer. And I think it's interesting because we've just gotten done with this section and it seems like all the way through Mark, uh, Jesus, that's, one of, that's where he gets his power. He spends entire days healing multitudes. And of course, people are amazed by that. Who wouldn't be? But everyone thinks that it's just because he's just this powerful guy, like he's Superman that just showed up in town and he can knock down buildings with a single, you know, whatever. But the main thing is, is that Jesus shows up and he's not working out of his power. His power comes from the Father who sent him. And he tells people that over and over again, that the authority that he's been given has come from God. He is, in fact, God. He's the Son of God. So they're amazed at what happened, and he tells them that they have the same ability to do things on earth by the power of God from heaven that he does. Notice the example Jesus uses here. He says, say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea. I don't know what the the big hill is that you kind of drive around to come into Pilot Knob, but you can kind of see it from this side of the valley as well. But can you imagine, if you will, uh, somebody called it, uh, it's got like a mine shaft in it and stuff. Doesn't it have like a local name or something? Devil's Devil's Icebox. Imagine, if you will, Jesus shows up on the scene. He tells each one of us here, he says, hey, uh, look at Devil's Icebox. Now, they're on the Mount of Olives, but we'll use our context, right? He says, look at Devil's Icebox. Icebox? Yeah. yeah. It's you can tell me a story later. Yeah. I'm sure there's a good story to go on like that name. But basically, what if you, Jesus came in and he says, Hey, consider devil's icebox. If you have the faith to believe that God can remove it, and you pray that it be removed, it can be removed. And they're, of course, going, What? That's impossible, right? That's a big hill. That's not just a hill. That's not just dirt. There's rocks and there's this whole foundation and there's a reason it's still there. It hasn't even eroded over thousands of years. And so the point is, is when he says, say to this mountain, be removed and be cast into the sea, it's not just that they're moving it. We can move mountains, right? But to take the entire thing and cast it into the sea is something that we see and we go, that's impossible. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, he's telling his disciples to pray for the impossible, to pray for things to happen that are impossible because God can do great things. If you would have told us before the world existed, hey, God's going to speak and the world will now exist after he speaks, people would say, absolutely not. But they couldn't say absolutely not because he hadn't created them yet. So it's kind of ironic, right? But Jesus is saying, pray for the impossible, impossible, because with God, all things are possible. But Jesus not, is not saying here that you can just pray for any old thing that you want and that it will be given to you. Many people believe that. If you believe it, you can achieve it. Um, but what he's saying, what he's not saying is, you know, this is not Jesus saying at all that you can just pray whatever you want. God is not our celestial genie. How many people would want to have a genie? You know, this little lamp, you just sit there, it doesn't take up much room, you rub it once in a while, you go, hey, I need another paycheck, I haven't worked this week, you know, but, but I'd like to have a paycheck anyway. Well, it, God's not our celestial genie, but he does provide for what we need. Um, you have to take scripture, anytime you read any scripture, you have to take it into the context of the entire Bible. You have to take what Jesus taught in context of all the other things that he said. And I think that's important because many times, and cults are started this way, where they take one little piece of scripture and they make their whole religion based on one thing that Jesus said. 
but it's all necessary. It's all true. And so because of that, it's like two forms on concrete when you're doing a, a foundational wall. If you have a form on both sides, you'd fill it with concrete. It makes a wall. But if you just have one form, you just got a blob. You just got a bunch of concrete you're going to have to bust out and redo. So same thing is true with following Jesus. You can't just take one thing or this thing or that thing. You have to take the whole context of what he said. So because of that, it made me think of uh, where Jesus taught his disciples to pray. In Luke chapter 11, he actually said uh, his disciples came up to them and he, they said, Hey, John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. Jesus, you're, our, you're, you're the one we're following. Will you teach us how to pray? So uh, I read it from Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 through 15. But he said, in this manner, pray as a response to that. Now, many people know the Lord's Prayer, and many people assume that this is, you know, we need to pray this every time we pray. But the main idea is it was a pattern for prayer, not necessarily what we were supposed to pray. Although the themes in the prayer are what he wants us to pray for. So I'm just going to read it to you. Matthew chapter 6 says, In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's one of the main points. Your will be done, Lord. Give us this day our daily bread. Provide for us, please. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And then he says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So notice the main portion of the prayer here is to pray for God to God that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the main problem with the fall is that what we decided to do is to take the lives that God had given us and say, you know what? I have my own purposes. I have my own plans for my life. And that's what Adam did in the garden. He's, you know, he was tempted and he went to it because he had a desire in his heart to have all that he could have in this world. So when the fall happened, all of a sudden what was right, they were walking with the Lord in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. And, and at, at that point, what he says, I don't want your will, God. I want my will to be done on earth. And I've heard it said many times, and this, I, I love this, what this says. It says, prayer is the means in which God gets his will done on earth, not the means in which man gets his will done in heaven. Oftentimes when we pray, we're like, Lord, change my situation. Like, use, all your, use everything that you have and change my situation. And oftentimes we think, well, God doesn't care. He's not there because he hasn't changed my situation. But the reality is, is many times he has a different purpose. He, he has his will to fulfill. And so if he doesn't change it, we have to understand that we need to trust him because maybe him not doing it is the best thing. Just like when children ask for a toy and it's one of those toys that you know they're going to hurt themselves with. And you're like, absolutely not. I will not get you that thing. And they're like, well, why not? Because you're going to hurt yourselves. And the same thing for God. He says, you prayed for that and that's good. Uh, but since you're praying my will, uh, <laughs> I'm going to give you what my will is for you. And it's to not have that. It's for your good. And so verse 25 says, he continues to talk about prayer. It says, whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him that your father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. 
or as we read in the Lord's Prayer earlier as well, debts, uh, trespasses, debts. It's talking about sin. It's talking about doing someone wrong, but doing it wrong, first off, when we do people wrong, many times people don't realize that we're sinning against God when we do that. So he's saying, when, when uh, excuse me, forgive him that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. Verse 26 says, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I don't know about you guys, but for, that, for me, that's a very stout command, uh, thing that Jesus has just said. Because I have a hard time forgiving people. I want everyone to forgive me, but I have a really hard time forgiving everyone else. I want grace on, other pe- on me, but I don't want so much grace on other people. And, and Jesus knows that we struggle with this. He knew his disciples struggle with it. So we had to let him know, hey, a key component to prayer is forgiveness. Not just asking for forgiveness, but giving it. A large portion of prayer should be us, number one, confessing to God that He is holy, that He is perfect, which is called adoration, just recognizing who He is and and telling it back to Him, worshiping Him, adoring Him for who He is. But the second part of that is confessing that we are not holy or perfect, but instead sinful. Lord, you're good, and I am not. And when we do that, what you find out is that when you confess to God, Lord, I know that you're perfect. I know that you're holy. I recognize that. I acknowledge that. And in light of that, I'm not holy at all. I'm not perfect. I don't measure up to your standard. So Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it means. We've trespassed. All have broken his law. And then we're to confess our sins to him so that we may be forgiven. 1 John 1 Chapter, verse 8 through 9 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Many people today walk around saying, Well, I don't really need God because I'm not a sinner. I'm like, Wow, that's, that's a pretty prideful thing to say. I don't know anybody that could really say that. And <laughs> I hope nobody could say that and believe it. But many people do. They believe that they don't need God because they're like, I've never done anything wrong. Uh, if you talk to their spouse, they might tell you otherwise, Right? Or their kids, or kids talk, talk to their parents. They're like, no, that kid is a sinner. But the problem is, is that many people walk around thinking that they don't. But 1 John 1, straight here in the Bible, says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just to forgive us of our sins, not just to forgive us, but then to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He makes us right. You cannot have forgiveness from God without confession. However, many times we want forgiveness from God and he will not give it to us because we have not forgiven those who have sinned against us. A crucial element to receiving forgiveness from God is our first being willing to forgive others. Remember, if you will, the parable of the unforgiving servant. If you'll turn with me uh, to the left to Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, we're going to read that. There in Matthew, it says, uh, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall, I, shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And uh, he says, up to seven times? Of course, Peter thinks, hey, I'm being gracious. I should forgive him seven times. This will be a good enough number. And it is. That's a lot to forgive somebody, right? That's hard. If they do the same thing over and over, think about how many times you've had somebody do two things 
some, the same thing to you twice, and the second time it's like, okay, I'm done. I'm not forgiving you anymore because you obviously don't care. You're going to keep doing it. And God says, and Peter says, so of course Peter's like, hey, seven times, that's a, that's a big number. I'll probably be good. Jesus, Jesus will be proud of me. He says, how much may I, shall I, my brother sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts to settle debts with his servants. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, one talent is a is an amount of money. One talent uh, is quite a bit of money. That's what we'll stay with. I mean, there's no like straight, like this is what it compares to the American dollar today. Uh, one guy said it was around 1000 to $3,000. That's a conservative estimate. Many people may believe it was a lot more than that. But the point is, I don't know about you guys, but to me, $1,000 or $3,000, somebody gave me that, I'd be like, you rock, because that's a lot of money. Uh, so to me, that's a lot of money. Uh, he says, uh, one servant was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So that's quite a bit of money. 10,000 times even the most conservative, 1,000 would be, uh, what, $100,000. So, but as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant, therefore, fell down, fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me. I'll pay you all of it. And then the master of that servant was moved with compassion and he released him and forgave him the debt. I don't know too many people who forgive that much debt. But that servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now a hundred denarii, just to give you an idea, a denarius was one day's wage. So a hundred denarius would be a hundred days wages. And so probably a little short of 100,000. So it's in comparative, it's not very much. So he found his fellow servant. He went out, he found him. He owed him 100 denarii right after being forgiven all this debt. And he laid hands on him. He took him by the throat, not just talking to him, but he took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and he begged him saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you all of it. Remember, that's what he said. And he would not, but he went and he threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what he had done, they were very grieved and they came and they told their master all that had been done. And then his master, after he had called him up, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? And his master was angry, and he delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that he was due, was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. So that parable to me is the easiest way to explain what he's saying. If you don't forgive those who are around you who have done just a little thing, how can God forgive you of all the, the sin that you've committed against him? The main point is that when we do not realize how much we have truly been forgiven, we do not forgive others their trespasses or their debts, mainly their sins against us. And when we do that, we are like the servant who owed his master millions, 
who had been forgiven, and we will not forgive others for the, the petty stuff, the small debts that they have against us. And the Lord sees this, and all he sees is a child of his who's forgotten where he came from. Forgotten where he came from. And oftentimes that happens. People grow up, even in small towns like this, they leave, they come back, and they think there's something. All of a sudden they got an education, they got a J-O-B, and they think, you know what, I'm something. They walk around, like what my pastor says, like a banny rooster, you know, kicking their head around, spurring up, kicking up dust. They think there's something. But what they don't realize is they forgot where they came from. And many times as Christians, if we experience God's forgiveness and we go out into the world, we walk around like banny roosters. We think, hey, I'm it. God loves me. Yeah, God didn't love you because you had anything to offer. God loved you because you needed to be loved. God loved you because you were dead in your sins and trespasses. He loved you because no one else would. And so when you know how much you've been forgiven, you, you remember that. You remember God's grace towards you. It's so much easier to forgive people that do those little things. So verse 27, Then they came again to Jerusalem. And he was walking in the temple. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority to do these things? Remember, it's the day after he's gone into the temple and he's basically knocked over tables, sent out the money changers, called them all thieves. And of course, the leaders of the temple, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, they came to him. They said, who gives you the authority to do this? Who do you think you are? Coming on our turf, knocking over tables. These weren't like card tables. These were stone tables. He was a little upset. I don't know about you guys. You ever see somebody that's really angry? All of a sudden, they've got super strength. They can knock over stuff. Uh, my brother and I, we used to get in fights. Imagine that. Two brothers would fight. Um, but we've knocked holes in walls and in doors when we were growing up. And afterwards, we're like, how did that even happen? Well, we were angry. Well, Jesus was righteously angry. And he was empowered by the Lord. He went in there and he expressed judgment. So he comes back here. <laughs> I don't know if he came back as if nothing happened. The disciples are probably like, hey, do we, this is going to be awkward if we go back in the temple. But he comes back to the temple. He's, te he's teaching them. And you say, what authority are you, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? So what things are they talking about? Perhaps they're talking about the scene that was made the day before in the temple. Or perhaps the teaching that he had continued to teach on their turf in Jerusalem, and people kept listening to it. You see, they were still upset that he came in and instantly had so many followers. They were losing their power. They were losing their prestige when the simple carpenter's son came in teaching with authority, as was mentioned earlier in Mark. Remember that everyone noticed that he taught as one having authority because he didn't quote people. He expressed truths based on what the scripture said. He didn't quote other rabbis, and that was what they would do. They'd say, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and so you should believe it. What Jesus did is he came in and said, you have, you have read, and you have heard taught, but I say, and he would use his own authority because he was the son of God. He would express not only the scripture or the teaching, but he would express it based on knowing God's will, knowing the Father, because he was sent by him. So, he taught as one having knowledge of the true intent of the scriptures that were written. And we know that this was because, we know, they didn't know, but we know that this was because his authority came from his father, from whom the law came and was written in the first place. So their, 
They're questioning his authority. And I find this quite ironic because he was questioning their authority. They were questioning his, and he was questioning theirs. Who do you think you are? You're in my father's house. So verse 29 says, But Jesus answered, and he said to them, I also will ask you a question. Then answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. He says, The baptism of John, when he was out there in the wilderness baptizing, was what he was doing, was that from heaven or was it from men? Was it man's idea or was it God's idea? Answer me. So he expected a response because otherwise he was going to answer a question. So they, they reasoned among themselves and they said, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not follow him? Why didn't you believe him? Why did you scoff at him? Why did you think he was crazy? Verse 32 says, but if we say from men, they feared the people for all counted John to have been a prophet. So because they feared the people, they answered and they said to Jesus, we don't know. In other words, we don't have an opinion. Now, did they have an opinion? Absolutely. But they didn't give it. So I first of all want to point out that these men who were the leaders of that day, they did not have a personal answer of what they believed. They didn't know what they believed. They just knew they were against Jesus. Instead, they considered what they would answer based on what they thought those listening would think of them. Verse 34, And Jesus answered and said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This passage shows that even the chief priests really had no authority. Their main task was to represent God to the people and then represent the people to God. And yet they had no idea about God, what he was doing in their current time, or even what the people's needs were at the current time. They were concerned more with man's opinion than with God's authority. And so because of that, they did not even have an answer to Jesus' question. They were afraid they would lose favor with the common people. How ironic that their authority really was based on man's opinion, the crowds. And yet they thought that they had authority over those people. And their opinion, they were ruled by the opinions of the people they thought they had authority over. I think it's interesting because in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, it says, The fear of man brings a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. When you decide to live your life based on what other people might think of you, you're setting yourself up to be ruled by them. You follow whoever you worship. And when you fear man's opinion, or woman's opinion, or boy or girl, or whoever it is, when you follow their opinion, not only will you be completely unstable because their opinion will change. They always do. People's opinions change. Um, but also, um, you'll be ruled by those people. You'll be ruled by the opinions of the people. So Jesus did not commit himself to the crowds and their opinion of him because he knew men's hearts, that they were wicked. Instead, we're called to commit our ways to the Lord and to, de- excuse me, and to desire to obey and please him. This is the safest way to live our lives. Fearing man is a trap to man. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 says, The fear of the Lord is... Not the fear of man, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. So Jesus, after this, explains this situation to everyone listening and the chief priests using a parable. So we'll read this parable and that'll be the end for our our discussion or our study today. Verse 1, chapter 12 says, Then he began to speak to them in parables. He says, A man planted a vineyard and he set a hedge around it. He dug a place for the wine vat. And he built a tower and he leased it 
or he rented it to vine dressers and he went in to a far country. Now at the time of vintage, he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. That tells me there was probably part of the agreement is that they would get some of the, the fruit of the vine as part of their lease. And maybe that would be part of the payment so they wouldn't have to, they'd have somebody else take care of it. So he sent a servant to the vine dressers that he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty handed. Again, he sent them another servant. And at him they threw stones, wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully treated. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others beating, beating some and killing some. Therefore, still having one son, his beloved son, he also sent him to them last, saying, They will respect my son. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours instead. So they took him, they killed him, they cast him out of the vineyard, and therefore, what, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Well, he will come, he will destroy the vine dressers, and he will give the vineyard to others. Throughout Israel's history, the Lord had sent to them one prophet after another to get fruit from them, his vineyard, to express to them, to teach them, and every time they would send them away and they would beat them, they would kill them. The religious leaders would. But God would not relent. His vineyard was blessed by him and prepared in order to bear fruit to the glory of his name. That's why he raised up the nation of Israel. So finally, he sent his son to the vineyard to gather fruit from the vineyard. And those who were hirelings and cared nothing for the owner decided that if they killed the owner's son, they'd be able to inherit the vineyard for themselves. So they killed him. They cast him out of the vineyard. And this is what Jesus knew that these men had in their hearts to do to him. Jesus said, therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come. He will destroy the vine dressers. He will give the vineyard to others. He'll judge them. and He'll pass the vineyard on to others. He has in these days given his vineyard to any who would receive it and to take care of it. Any who would come to him through his son, Jesus. That's the point. The one that was rejected, that son that he sent was Jesus. And when he came to the nation of Israel, what the people did that he sent Jesus to is they rejected him primarily. And not only that, but they cast him off. They killed him. We've been blessed to have this door open to us. Their rejecting Jesus means that we have a time where we can respond to God's grace and become part of his people. We're not Jewish. I don't know about you guys. I'm not Jewish. I'm a Gentile. I'm anybody else other than a Jew. And so because of that, I have this same opportunity to respond to God's love, to respond to his grace. So verse 10 says, have you not even read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus here quotes from their own scriptures in Psalm 118. And he makes the connection between the Messiah and the cornerstone that was rejected during the building of the temple. Now, the story goes, and this isn't scripture, so if you want to throw stones later, that's fine. I'm, not, I'm just using this story as an example. But the story goes that when they built the temple, all the stones were hewn. They were carved in the quarry before they brought them. We can think of quarries because we've got lots of them around here. They'd carve them off site, and they would bring them, and they would build the temple on the site of the temple. 
They did that so there would be no sound on the temple, but so that the stones would be pushed together silently and the temple site would be holy. Now, when they were sent from the quarry, there was one stone that arrived on site and they couldn't figure out where it was supposed to go. It didn't fit anywhere. And so they cast it aside and they continued to build the rest of the stones until that day when they realized that there was one missing piece. And that missing piece that they thought didn't even fit in the building at all was that stone that they had rejected. So those that were part of the building process went and looked for the stone they couldn't find anywhere. Finally, they found one guy who said he remembered where they took it. He was the trash guy. You know, he was the guy that, you know, they were like, hey, just get rid of this thing. And he went, and he went to the spot where he left it, brushed off the dust, and they moved it, and they brought it to the temple site. When they found out what it was, it was actually the chief cornerstone. Now, if you know anything about building buildings, the cornerstone is what keeps, it's the perfect, perfectly square stone that goes right in the corner, and oftentimes they'll put a little mark on it to show what year it was built. But when they put it in, don't you realize that when the, the cornerstone is set, then you build from the cornerstone. And because it's square, it's perfect, they spend more time on the cornerstone than anything else. What you know is that when they build it, the building becomes exactly square, exactly what it was supposed to be. Now, I don't know about you guys, I've never lived in a house that was exactly square. But that was the purpose. Jesus Christ, the perfect cornerstone upon which all things are to be built, the rock, the foundation that he is. And they took him, the people of Israel, and they said, you know what? We don't like what he is, what he looks like. He doesn't really fit in our religious system. So we're going to cast him off. And he wouldn't go away. So when they cast him off, he kept coming back. So they sought to find ways to kill him. And they did. He's become the chief cornerstone, though. Death could not stop him. So, verse 12. They sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude. There's that fear of man again. They sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the multitude, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. They understood that he was saying that they were wrong and he was right. So they left him and they went away. Let me ask you, do you still reject Jesus even though you have, in word, said that you are God's? These men were religious men. They were the most religious in all of Israel, but they didn't know Jesus. When he came, when he showed up, when God showed up in their temple, they rejected him. And they were upset at everything he had to say. Do you fear man's opinion more than God's? Or are you just not experiencing God's forgiveness because you won't forgive others? Each one of these can, can distance you from Jesus and you may not even know it. If any of these are true of you, realize that this can be changed. Respond to the Lord's conviction tonight and ask Him to change you. That's His desire. It's not His desire that any man should perish, but that all should receive eternal life. Tonight we'll take communion. This is a time for us to remember back to what God has done. This is a time to remember what He is doing and to look forward to when He'll come. But in the meantime... The things that we've talked about tonight, maybe they're touching you in some way. and You're like, Lord, I, I know that um, I'm not perfect. That's the first step, realizing that you need him. And uh, just let him deal with your heart. You know, maybe there's some things that he's trying to show you. I don't know about you guys, but as I studied this this week, I really struggle with the fear of man, what people think of me. It's hard because everywhere we go, there's somebody that's got an opinion. Everybody's got an opinion, right? 
But the issue is, is what opinion matters most to you? Everyone will always have opinions. But does it matter to you as much as the Lord's opinion of you? So as we take communion tonight, I just want you to remember that our identity is supposed to be in Jesus Christ. So as you think about that, maybe you've been in a spot where you fear man more than you fear Jesus. Maybe you, uh, you're like these Pharisees and these chief priests and Jesus isn't what you thought he would be. And so you're like, heck with that. But he's still the Lord, whether you worship him or not. And so maybe it's time to get right just to, to humble yourself in his sight and to ask him to forgive you. We're going to pass out communion. We're going to sing a song as it's passed out. And during that time, I just want you to sing with us. Uh, worship, pray, maybe confess some sin if there's some stuff that God wants to, you to deal with and you haven't been wanting to. But don't take it unworthily. Let, let Him deal with you before you take it. And then, remember, take the elements with me and I'll, I'll lead you through that. And then you can worship Him. Then you can be freed up. Then you can be forgiven. Maybe there's somebody you've got to forgive that, that you haven't forgiven. You're holding it against somebody. But remember that He is God and confess to Him that He is good, and remember that all His benefits towards you, there are many. Confess to Him that you're not perfect like He is, and thank Him that He loved you anyway. I think that's one of the most beautiful things about Jesus, is that He loves us anyway, even when we're rejecting Him. He loved those Pharisees. That's why He told them, why he told them the truth. So let's, uh, let's sing a song, and, and they'll hand out communion for us.